You ready? Mm -hmm. Welcome, everyone. Um, this is going to be an informal roundtable. We will have about uh, 20 minutes of comments from our guest, and then we'll open it up to your questions and answers. This is a Community Voices event. It is the 40th in this series. Um, Community Voices is sponsored by the Institute for Policy and Governance. And broadly, it concerns uh, major issues at all scales, having to do with community change concerns. It involves a number of um, colleges and both doctoral and master students from those colleges. They are engaged as volunteers because they're interested in these topics. They meet weekly for about an hour to think about these concerns. They set the agenda for the guests um, that we have during each semester uh, of the year. I should also have said that I'm Max Stevenson and I'm the director of the Institute for Policy and Governance. I know everybody in the room pretty much and I forget that, uh, but for our audience here um, on tape. I wanted to say thank you to lots of people uh, who made our guest today, his visit here and his residency at Virginia Tech possible, the College of Architecture and Urban Studies, the Institute for Policy and Governance, the School of Public and International Affairs, the Division of Student Affairs here at the university, the Institute for Society, Culture, and the Environment here at the university, the Department of Political Science, thank you, Karen Holt, the Office of International Research, Education, and Development, the Department of Agricultural Leadership and Community Education, and then in the College of Liberal Arts and Human Sciences, the Dean's Advisory Committee on International Initiatives. So welcome, all of you. Thank you for coming. I look forward to uh, a typically thoughtful discussion. And now to introduce our guest, uh, Francesco Manca, uh, is Professor Laura Zanotti uh, from the Department of Political Science. Thank you. Thank you, Max. And thank you, everybody, for coming. I'm Laura Zanotti from the Department of Political Science, and I had the privilege to meet Francesco more than 20 years ago at the United Nations when we were both uh, working uh, in the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. Francesco had a longer career than mine. I retired, I didn't retire, but I resigned uh, pretty early. And Francesco has continued a brilliant career at the United Nations. He was, he has retired recently as a Deputy Director for the Political and Civil Affairs Office at UNIFIL, the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon, a position that he had occupied since 2009. Prior to that, Francesco Manca has served since 2003 as a senior political advisor at ANSO, the United Nations Trust Super Truth Supervision Organization for the Armistice Agreement between Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. In 2002, he was the chief of the electoral component at the UN mission in Sierra Leone, and in 2000 and 2001, he was in charge of the Situation Center at the Department of Peacekeeping Operation at the United Nations headquarters in New York. Uh, he had a career at the United Nations that lasted for more than two decades, and he has led various projects, both at UN headquarters and in the field, in a very diverse array of areas, including economic development, electoral assistance, human rights, peacekeeping, and peacebuilding. He also undertook several UN missions with political assignment and managerial responsibility in Central America, the Balkans, Tajikistan, East Timor, Sierra Leone, and the Middle East. Uh, he has lectured on related topics at several academic and professional forums in Europe, North and, North and Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East. So it is a pleasure, and please welcome Francesco Manca today. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Laura. Uh, let me add a couple of things to my CV, uh, not just because uh, I like to talk with my, for myself, but uh, because I think they will become relevant for what I'm going to say later on. Uh, and it's related about the perception. I mean, you know, who, how can I be perceived? And certainly Francesco is Italian. I'm Italian. Uh, Roman Catholic uh, background, I'm, I'm secular, not uh, very much uh, a religious person, but I think it's, it's worth it for you to know that, to have this perception. Uh, I served, uh, at that time was compulsory, but I made, made one step uh, in uh, further, and I served in the army as an officer of the reserve of the Italian army. It means an officer of NATO. And uh, something that... Uh, was almost never relevant for the 
for the lectures that we were presenting, but I worked for four years with Procter & Gamble in personnel and uh, in marketing. So these additional informations are related uh, to the topic that we are dealing today, and, uh, and it's about the impartiality of uh, international civil servant. That impartiality is like a Caesar's wife. There is not enough to, to, to have uh, the, the fact that is faithful. Everyone needs to believe that is faithful. So when you look at me, you say, okay, you know, he has a Western background. What we might expect is someone that is uh, talking along our terms of uh, analyzing the world, probably on certain issues, but uh, I'm bringing it upfront because not what we are talking about is uh, how these categories are perceived at the United Nations. And, uh, and let's start uh, to put it uh, in context, historically. I mean, the United Nations Charter was uh, approved in 1945, and uh, probably the ethical tension at that time, after World War II, was such uh, that made possible the acceptance of uh, universal principles of big uh, items that could be true for each individual, and emphasis was put on the neutrality, autonomy, uh, both of individuals and particularly of the uh, international civil servant. Let's also be clear when we are talking of the United Nations that we are talking of uh, two different categories that are often mixed together when we are talking of personnel. Uh, one is uh, the people working in the secretariat, so the United Nations civil servants. Uh, others are representative of member states that are still part of the United Nations and are an essential component of their major organs, and I'm referring to the General Assembly or the International or the Security Council. And let me go to the Charter of the United Nations, just briefly to mention a couple of, uh, of points. The first one is in the preamble of the United Nations, and somehow, up to today, is still a source of uh, ambiguity for certain. Because it says, preamble of the Charter of the United Nations, we, the people of, of the United Nations, determined to save succeeding generations from the surge of war, which twice in our lifetime and went on. So it goes like, we, the people of the United Nations. And uh, I heard different interpretation if uh, we, the people, means uh, individuals, regardless their nationality or all the other elements that characterize individuals, have certain rights or if those rights are there just because they are part of those nations that you know, agreed to work together in the United Nations. Why I'm bringing it up? Because when you serve for the United Nations, the dilemma comes if you are serving there in your individual capacity or if you serve there on behalf of the country that, uh, that you represent. In the Charter, they went even further, and they were extremely explicit when they are referring to the people working in the Secretariat as international civil servant. And I'm reading Article 100, and it says, in the performance of their duties, the Secretary General and the staff shall not seek or receive instructions from any government or from any other authority external to the organization. They shall refrain from any action which might reflect on their position as international officials responsible only to the organization. Article two, each member of the United Nations undertakes to respect the exclusively international character of the responsibility of the Secretary General and the staff and not to seek to influence them in the discharge of their responsibilities. Again, I think this was uh, the sort of peak, you know, the high standard 
1946, 45, 46, you know, after the approval and when they started recruiting people for the United Nations. Uh, it came to my mind a great uh, American serving for the United Nations, Ross Bunch, which was the, uh, the one that put together the armistice agreements between Israel, uh, Egypt, Jordan, uh, Syria, and Lebanon, which was a former civil servant of his, society, of his uh, country, and then went and served for the, for the United Nations. I would say that was very ideal. Then we got the Cold War, and the Cold War somehow positioned, particularly uh, for those coming from Soviet countries and those coming from US or Western countries, a sort of polarized situation. But the, the end of the, of the Cold War gave uh, an expectation that uh, the international civil servant could be what Article 100 was uh, expecting, a sort of uh, independent sort of uh, uh, civil servant that was not above the party, but was uh, at the service of all the parties with the perception of neutrality that later on had been challenged. In the 90s, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, uh, one of the main uh, projects of the United Nations, one of the main crises the United Nations was involved with was uh, in the Balkans. And the cooperation with NATO became uh, a sort of crucial factor, particularly because there was, a, at a certain stage, even an agreement that was passed as a dual key agreement in which, in order to authorize bombing, uh, both the United Nations and NATO should uh, provide approval. Uh, so at that time, the UN was militarily not prepared to such a, uh, a joint operation or a, you know, a cooperation. And NATO provided the UN with what uh, became known as gratis military personnel. They said, you know, fine, you need someone to support you, we will provide you for free uh, some of our qualified people. That initiative worked for a few years. I mean, I've, and at a certain point was stopped by the General Assembly because was in contradiction with Article 100. They were basically saying, you are presenting us with a present, with a contribution, but it's like a Troy horse. Uh, you are putting in our organization people with their national agenda, and in senior position, they are influencing the decision process. So we want decisions to be taken in those position where we have transparency and proportional representations of, uh, of the member states. Uh, similarly, there are certain, how would I call, agreements, not written, traditions. One of them, for instance, is that uh, you never had, uh, we never had a secretary general from the Permanent Five. Uh, it's not written that should not be from the Permanent Five, but the choice was to avoid that difficult negotiation. Uh, but as a, as a consequence of it, the, the UN at its highest level was somehow split in areas of influence. And uh, for many years, for instance, the US was uh, dealing with uh, financial issue, budget and administration. It was a way of uh, having a political influence on the United Nations, in the sense that it is a, a regular budget, and not a regular budget, fine. The UN hierarchy can decide. And this, there is a, a support account, and the support account, based on voluntary contribution, is every time sort of uh, open to negotiations. So I pay for a project, I finance it if I like it. So you are detaching the political decision process, and you are linking it with your national interest on the basis of what you are financing. Furthermore, in the appointment uh, of the most senior people at the, at the United Nations, the, namely the Under Secretary Generals, we started having a sort of traditional areas of influence. Uh, if you look at the last uh, decade or so, in the Department of uh, 
um, political affairs. Used to be Brit at the time of uh, Mara Goulding or Kieran Prendergast. Then moved to the US. Today, the Under Secretary General for Political Affairs is uh, Jeffrey uh, Feldman, and he is a former US ambassador. So you can see UK, US continuity. Much worse in, uh, in uh, peacekeeping operations that became sort of traditional French position. And then uh, I naming Millet, Guénaud, Leroy, uh, Lassus, so a series of French officials that uh, replaced their predecessors. But to certain extent, what is even more matter of concern is that they went back to a public job in their ambassador capacity, uh, often even at a more important level. So the perception is that there was uh, never discontinuity in what they were, they were doing. You look at, uh, at China, China has kept uh, a role in development. And, uh, and Russia was for many years the uh, responsible of Geneva office, which is the second uh, more important office of the, of the UN. So this is somehow questioning the uh, perceived neutrality of the organization and perceived neutrality of their highest member. Uh, if I would be Russian, and that's why I, I started adding, by adding some of my CV details that were not in, uh, printed in the presentation, if I would be a Russian today talking to you about Syria, uh, I would probably see in your face expression some comments of, oh, of course. I mean, you know, what, what would you expect? And, uh, and then I'm, you know, I'm pointing you the emergency meeting of last Friday at the Security Council. And uh, at the Council, of course, there was the um, US ambassador that uh, was changing hat in the sense that as part of the rotation, it just happened, and this is part of the rules, that she was the president of the Security Council. Uh, questionable is the whole system of the Permanent Five, but in any case, the US ambassador was there and was covering both the role of president of the council and the role of uh, ambassador of the United States. But there was another US ambassador uh, because Jeff Feldman was there on representation of the United Nations and, uh, and he was talking on behalf of the secretary general. Uh, so here we have, you know, discussing an action where the main uh, rationale was based uh, on the absence of the order or better, or the incapacity of the international community to act properly. And so in that sense, uh, to the weakness of the United Nations in act properly in a crisis uh, like the one of Syria, US is taking action. The discussion is made by two US ambassadors sitting in a room, and I don't want to enter on the legitimacy of the action of the, you know, the pro or cons of the action itself. I'm just emphasizing as a consequence of what we have been discussing so far, the perception of the legitimacy of having so many US at that level discussing the whole, uh, the whole issue. Uh, let me also say that uh, for the Secretary General, we have seen certain changes as well. I, for those who are more interested in this topic, I recommend you, Anvangvesh is a book by Boutros Boutros Ghali, and uh, the subtitle is the UN-US Saga. And, uh, and it's quite critical, the whole relationship between United Nations and United States. Kofi Annan replaced Boutros Ghali and, uh, and certainly was perceived as a sort of pro more pro-US than Boutros Ghali, but internally for us was a moment of joy because uh, I still remember was perceived as one of us for you know, becoming Secretary General, somebody that came from within. Probably another one that had that sort of profile was Sergio Viero de Mello, later on killed in, uh, in Iraq. People that had a UN 
experience. Guterres, the current uh, Secretary General, at least served for many years uh, as a representative uh, of the refugee agency. Uh, but that was not the case, for instance, in the case of Ban Ki-moon, and, uh, and the perception was that, yes, he was a political appointee and, uh, and had to deal mediating with, uh, with big member states and, uh, and power. I, I would prefer to stop here, maybe, since that, that, that was the timing that Max gave me, and uh, engage in a, in a more lively discussion with questions and answers. How do you keep a sense of continuity where there's political instability? Um, how governments are changing? We've seen a rise in conservative movements across the globe in Western countries, such as Trump, where there's not a belief in um, the power of such the UN above. They believe that the UN should have power restricted. Um, how do you maintain the stability in the UN when their domestic countries are on a political pendulum? Yes. I think that one of the strengths of the United Nations is to be the common denominator. So it, 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 has, a large, it has a large base uh, where actions are often difficult to, uh, to be taken, but where consensus should sort of be one of the goals. The charter is one of the references that maintain this common denominator. That's why I'm using the charter, in a sense that as a, somehow as a national constitution, you have uh, references to principles that should be widely accepted and should be the reference for our actions. Uh, the changes in governments of member states have an impact on the UN. Uh, but I would say not only they have an impact, the UN is mirroring the international relations among member states and the formula that member states decide to use in order to rule their interaction. So we have seen a type of UN during the Cold War. We have seen a new type of UN in what might be considered by people who are studying the period, the transition. And, uh, and then we might see a third UN in what looks like uh, a sort of uh, new phase that somehow has taken distance, not only temporarily, but also in terms of uh, attitude from the Cold War. Uh, 10 years ago, we were talking of the end of the Cold War as something that happened yesterday. Uh, today, we probably have uh, to deal with the consolidated uh, behaviors that uh, are not any longer the, the Cold War or the post-Cold War. I think we, we have to deal with a new phase. And, uh, and on that, I don't know, to, we could compare the UN to the League of Nations, uh, and maybe one day the UN will be considered obsolete and we will have another organization. I don't think that the, that the world could uh, refer to international relations without uh, this sort of role of referee that an international organization can play. And, uh, and I still remember a phrase in a, a book, Belle du Seigneur of Cohen, that uh, is, is a romance, but on the, on the League of Nations. At a certain point, the protagonist is basically saying, you know, we have the League of Nations, uh, we should throw away our passport. And, uh, you know, being all UN, uh, UN staff. And it's interesting because uh, in the laissez-passer, you know, the blue passport of, uh, of the UN staff, there is no nationality. Like national, who you are is uh, UN. However, you are not allowed to enter this country with that passport. Uh, and you need to use your national passport. Interesting, isn't it? In the saga in North, North Korea, what is the role, what should be the role of the United Nations in trying to calm things down? 
I'm, I'm not an expert on, on the Korea issue, but uh, we go back to the 50s and the involvement of the UN into it uh, since, since then. Uh, so my answer is gonna be, let's say, based on principles rather than on, on specific, the, the old situation. I think that a lot of the justification for the use of force by those that are criticized, let's say, in, in, from Western point of view, of an excessive use of force, is, uh, is still fear. And, uh, and one of the preliminary measures to lower down the threat that we have from governments or organizations is to reassure them about you know, their fear. I think that the society, or the society, the world today is not doing enough to reassure these people, these individuals, these, these dictators, let's call them dictators, although it's probably not a term that uh, should be politically correct within the UN. But if you look uh, how uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, how Gaddafi, how um, you know these these people ended up their power career, their dictatorship. Let's call them dictatorship. There are plenty of question mark vis-a-vis -vis due process, legitimacy of use of force, execution, uh, and and the way. For this position of Assad is, uh, is discussed, is not giving Assad too many options. Uh, so I think that uh, the role of the UN should be to exploit at the maximum that gray area in between uh, and try to avoid polarization. I've been in the Middle East uh, for 15 years and, uh, and my perception was that uh, the international community was making a mistake, not because it was in favor or against someone, but because it uh, was polarizing rather than finding a common ground. And I think in the case of North Korea, the tendency is again to put gasoline on the fire <coughs> rather than find common denominator where you say, okay, let's try to reach an agreement to demilitarize the Pacific, to reduce the number of strategic weapons in, in that area. But I always found it difficult from superpowers to tell people, no, you should not have these weapons. We are, we are the only one authorized to have it. Uh, you know, it, it might sound good in the States, but when you are on the other side, it doesn't make any sense. I'm very interested in the, the notion of the international civil servant, but I think I'm probably asking this question from maybe the perspective of a student who's looking at the UN. Uh, you mentioned sort of universal principles and need for emphasis on neutrality and impartiality. So how does the UN enable its, its employees, staff, um, civil, international civil servants to become this kind of person that you're sort of the ideal person. So it's, I'm not looking at the structural changes you could make to representations on committees. It's more, how do you, how do you sort of nurture that individual um, to be the international civil servant that you've, you've talked about? I would say at two levels. The, the first level is, uh, is related to the principles of the UN, the UN Charter, you know, so it's ethical, it's big, it's high. And uh, is a necessary condition is not sufficient. Then you have to reflect those principles in the daily operation. And, uh, and there are certain tricks or certain formula that can make it possible. Probably from what I said before, you would guess that uh, I'm personally not satisfied vis-a-vis -vis the level reached in that sense by the organization. But uh, I like to look at it as a work in progress, and certainly there are example where, examples where the organization and member states reach an agreement 
or uh, a modus vivendi with, with uh, both uh, interests and both principles are safeguarded. Uh, I was, uh, as, uh, as Laura mentioned, for a while responsible for the Situation Center of the Department of Peacekeeping Operation that today became sort of the Situation Center for the Secretary General. is somewhere in, in between a watch room and an operation center. The operation center, in military terms, is really the one that uh, is passing orders. Uh, this one was more a channel of communication in order to allow people in the field to get in touch with the secretariat at various levels. So it's, a, it's, it's not just a receptionist. We were preparing you know, analysis and we were briefing member states, but uh, it has a lot of emphasis on the communication to, keep, to maintain the communication open. Then there was another aspect of it, which was called uh, information and research, INR, where we were dealing with uh, intelligence. Wow. And that was a word that uh, at the Security Council and at the General Assembly was uh, raising a lot of eyebrows. Uh, we had uh, six countries that uh, signed an agreement with the UN on information on providing information for, with intelligence, mainly oriented to the uh, safety of UN personnel deployed in the field and or to the assessment in the planning phase when a mission had to be studied and deployed. And uh, as you could expect, we had uh, US, uh, Russia, France, UK, China was not interested, and uh, we had Canada and Belgium. Those six individuals were rotating. The Russian was there a little bit longer, the, the, the Americans usually a couple of years, and uh, were people of the intelligence community of their own countries, very well known. So, you know, the issue was probably was their last assignment before retirement. And they were coming at the UN maintaining from an administrative point of view, their dependency from, uh, uh, from the member states they belong to. Why? Because their knowledge about a, a specific situation was, uh, I wouldn't say limited, but was temporarily certainly limited. Their strength was to have access to their country's organization. So if I had to ask uh, someone, uh, what is your assessment of the current situation in Tajikistan? the person needed to go back to his office in the capital and ask about Tajikistan. Was the decision of the country to address the answer at the level that they consider adequate. So they could come back to me and say, here is the report, do with it whatever you like, or they could go to the director of the competent area or they could go to the Secretary General, the Under Secretary General for Peacekeeping Operation or Political Affairs. In that case, it was the ambassador himself. Or, and I had the case, was even the president of the country talking directly with the Secretary General. And again, I had experience, personal experience of putting the two in communication directly. In those cases, those people were serving at the United Nations but maintaining their national capacity. I think that that was uh, successful to the point that they survived that sort of criticism of the General Assembly vis-a-vis -vis the gratis military personnel. I think it's not adequate to have uh, the ambiguity of people that you don't know if they are serving their countries or not. And to large extent, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think also that uh, Perception is very, very important. There was a, a, a very capable American woman uh, that I met as Assistant Secretary General, then later on she became Under Secretary General uh, in the Department of Peacekeeping Operation, was the first one acting in the Department of uh, Mission Support. Uh, Jane O'Lute, I'm coming out with name. Uh, and I worked with her and I have to say, a fantastic woman. But I was always somehow uncomfortable with the fact that she was married with a three-star general that was working in the president's office dealing with uh, the issue of Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, 
uh, I mean, to which extent you stretch it. I mean, I'm not saying I've been working with Jane, very nice person, a very capable person, but how can you go to the ground and uh, assert your impartiality uh, with such a background? So you don't talk to, about it, you put it up front, is, is a big dilemma. So do, I think that these are the kind of situation that the organization should be very careful on how you work on, on particularly when you are talking of, uh, of Syrian positions. So when individuals are talking about uh, on behalf of the organization itself. On the note of civil servants, um, what is being done in the UN to combat corruption? And is that an issue particularly widespread within the organization? Absolutely. Big issue, big scandals. Uh, I wouldn't say a lot of corruption, but uh, enough to undermine the credibility of certain operations. And uh, and there again, a sort of dual impact. The first impact, and I'm less concerned about it, is uh, criminal. You know, if somebody is stealing something, I mean, if uh, he can steal toilet paper from the bathroom, and uh, and it's a criminal act. Period. You know, you don't have to discuss about it. You just to have to pursue, fire the person. I mean, send the. It depends what kind of the level, of course, but uh, I would say we had this, this sort of, uh, of events. And this is why there are monitoring committee made of member states monitoring the United Nations budget. And this is why the US also kept such a tie high on, uh, on the expenses and the budget. And that aspect has that sort of positive connotation of control on budget, particularly efficiency, less than effectiveness. Efficiency is, is really the, the issue that you are controlling. But the other aspect is political, and then is Pandora box, in a sense that uh, member states have played uh, consistently and out of proportion with, uh, with scandal conveniently if they want to support or undermine a UN decision. And that when you enter into sort of minefield in all sense. Uh, and, and, and you look for a scapegoat. And, uh, you know, because somehow you can identify who the responsible are, get rid of the, the responsible, and, that, and that's it. But if you want to go further and undermine the credibility of the operation, uh, then becomes often very, very political. Same story, even more contradictory, was related to uh, sexual scandal at the UN. And again, member states and, uh, uh, and secretariat were playing around it. You know, is it a UN issue? No, no, is this contingent? Is that group? Is, uh, then becomes, you know, you label what is happening with the nationality or with the cultural segment or with this or with that, and becomes very, very slippery. Uh, I would prefer to, you know, to be very, very clear on, on the issue, but uh, at that political level, as it happened in politics, I mean, you know, if, uh, if you have a secretary of state, if you have a president that is uh, accused of something, cannot just be on his, uh, uh, let's say, criminal record that has political implication. I don't know if this is a good question or not, um, but I'm kind of intrigued about, um, okay, so within the federal government of the United States, we have security clearances, for example, where people undergo scrutiny to determine whether or not they're fit and trustworthy to hold confidential information. Um, does the UN similarly have processes that vet individuals, or conceivably, um, is it just up to whoever the? And I think I'm speaking specifically from member from member states, um, whoever is appointed. Um, and then I want to kind of connect to that in terms of um, a 
accountability of individuals working within the UN and maybe connect to your question as well as your question. So when people are found to be partial um, in when they're meant to be neutral, what are the ramifications? What are the consequences? In what ways can they be held accountable for essentially betraying the United Nations in the best interest of their own country? It's kind of two questions. Very, very interesting question. Very weak answer. Uh, in the sense that uh, the records the UN has in pursuing people uh, with that sort of responsibility is extremely low. Uh, with a you know, lack of impartiality uh, in the sense that uh, Often the question is, which nationality are we talking about? Certain countries are allowed, certain countries are not. Uh, for, the, for the job I was doing, particularly when I was at the Situation Center, the issue was not so much the level of, uh, of decision or that I was having, I mean, you know, the, the, the decision power, but access to information and effect of errors in the sense that uh, you know, there might be a piece of information warning the Secretary General, and I'm sitting on it for one week, and something happened, and then who is responsible for it? But having said that, that also means that in, in that center, so I'm talking of direct, specific responsibility, uh, we were handling a lot of classified information. So having the sort of background I was mentioning before with people coming from intelligence community with military background, we were the one that were working on uh, uh, classifying information and documents on uh, uh, establishing distribution level. And, however, for the habit of the UN before and the marginal role of the UN since the 80s, a lot of it was not respected at all. So it was very, very informal. And we were you know, putting for your eyes only or restricted, unrestricted. We, to start with, we were trying really to limit the classification, to have it clear what is classified and what is not. Uh, but then it was not unusual you know, that uh, the most uh, classified information was uh, delivered to the secretary general, to a director, through a career, which was uh, maybe a lieutenant colonel, you know, this, you give it to the colonel, to the, and then half an hour later, the secretary general was talking with an ambassador on an open phone, <laughs> everything was there. Uh, and so, you know, the security to that extent requires really a discipline that uh, the UN didn't have when I was working with it that we pointed out uh, trying to increase. But on the other hand, exposing ourselves to a dilemma in the sense that uh, you cannot work on the UN and say, this is an information for the good guys. Be sure that the bad guys don't get it. Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? Uh, and this is very important with the U in the UN. At a certain time in the 80s, there was uh, a, an office of the UN, uh, I think what the name was Orchi, dealing with country profile, to give you an example. And uh, it didn't work. And it didn't work because uh, particularly the P5, but mainly Western countries, oppose it and say, what do you want to know about the United States? I mean, why do you have a file on us? And he said, but you know, we are the UN. We need a file on, at a certain point, you, you get you and you, this United States, out <laughs> France, hey, if the United States, what do, we, do we have less than the United States? France out, UK out, Russia out, China out. So, you know, yes, you can have files on Burundi and Rwanda, uh, but, you know, that becomes embarrassing. And I think part of uh, the strength the United Nations should have is based on the respect of that impartiality. So that politically correctness that is required when you handle that sort of files, that sort of information. 
Was it complete to your question? I think it was. A, it was a wandering question anyway. It was your answer was sufficient. I now I haven't been in the secretariat. Uh, I mean, working in the secretariat now for the last fifteen years, and I've seen that uh, things have changed, even in the way you move around. The whole area is by far more restricted than and organized. So the, my perception is, uh, ideally, they have done something, but. Uh, in good and in bad, a lot of it was left on my time to personal contact. So if I had to say, to tell Laura something confidential, I would have just walked three floors and, uh, and say, you know, ABC. Uh, so the principle of need to know was quite flexible. Not, uh, and, uh, and certainly not up to uh, what you would consider appropriate. But I've seen similar behaviors in, uh, in, national, in national offices, all of them. Thank you. This too may be a, an ill-formed question, but I'm trying to figure out how one can be neutral and impartial, which I agree is important. At the same time, expecting um, commitment to universal human rights. That is, there will be some nation state actors that on that dimension will be bad actors. How is one impartial or neutral in that kind of situation? Thank you. A lot has to do with legitimacy of the judgment. Who is the judge for that? Um, so the, the, largest, the larger base you use to judge uh, the more likely your sentence is going to be accepted. Uh, and this is why, for certain issues, the last word is the General Assembly, not even the, the Security Council. When we, we often mix up, we are, when I say we, I'm saying uh, public opinion, actions and government. So when you have uh, actions that should be investigated and could be a war crime and could be, they're used as a tool to deslegitimize government. It's true that they contribute to the credibility of the government, but it's true also that it's very difficult to find a competent authority to legitimize or deslegitimize a government. On the contrary, is relatively easy to find an investigation and a court that could evaluate a, uh, an event or a crime and uh, decide if that action is legitimate or not, if it's a war crime or not. Uh, if you look at history, the records are not really successful or too successful. But to come to my mind, the special tribunal that was instituted for the assassination of Ariri. And contrary of common perception, like uh, chapter six, uh, unarmed, chapter seven, arm, I think that the difference between the two chapters is more linked to the issue of sovereignty and legitimacy. And in fact, if you look at the tribunal for the uh, investigation of uh, and centers of those responsible of Farid assassination is established under Chapter 7. So the, the tools are there, in theory. In practice, uh, it's up to the international community to use those tools properly and to keep them sharp enough and to maintain that uh, perception that uh, allows also people not only to accept the result of those investigations, but uh, also to enhance the perception that is a fair one. And this is why the appointments of certain nationality rather than others is, uh, is important. But I think that what, uh, what the UN ended up doing, which is too far and is, in my opinion is not correct, is uh, to appoint people for their nationalities rather than to exclude people for their nationalities. One, 
when we were working in Central America, we were not uh, employing in general, unless they were senior uh, UN already with 10 or 20 years of experience, US, Russian, or Central American citizens, because uh, we knew that their par impartiality would have been questioned. Uh, so you are facing a dilemma, particularly when you are talking of troops, that uh, countries are willing to send their troops and to face the cost, uh, both in terms of resources and in terms of political cost, of sending their troops if the process that the troops are dealing with is high on the national agenda. I'm interested in... Uh, in doing something in Haiti, because Haiti is so close to the US, so the US will keep an eye on Haiti. Central African Republic, fine. You know, we have sympathy, but we are not directly involved. Uh, so I, I think that there, for senior people, usually the profile of the senior officer are presented to the member states involved, particularly when you have negotiations, for the acceptance of these individuals. Uh, but you might also exclude certain nationalities uh, because uh, they are perceived as involved in the process. On the contrary, I think it's not right the approach of uh, this nationality is the right one. I, I would accept uh, the selection of a candidate for a senior position in a specific operation in a mediation as head of mission in a roster of several countries and several candidates, and not uh, as an imposition by a strong member state. Thank you very much. That was a fast hour, Francesco. <laughs> Appreciate very much your thoughtful commentary. Thank you all very much for coming. Hope to see you next time.